0: For many years, I have been um, walking through the Honolulu airport uh, as I've traveled uh, to courses, probably for 20 years now. And often, I'm rushing through the airport, (laughs) uh, (laughs) uh, trying to make the plane. And sometimes, uh, I have noticed a glass case that has these beautiful shells in in them from all over the world, just shells that I've never seen before, big shells, and cross-sections of these big shells. It's one of the most exquisite exhibits I've ever seen. But this year was the first time I took the time to look at them. And I've always wanted to, but just rush, rush, rush. Uh, So this year I did, and I think I took ten minutes to just look. You know which is that sense of really seeing versus just brushing the surface. Uh, And I was so amazed at how the spiral goes and how if you look very closely the path of of that spiral is just going around the same place. But each time there's more space and there's greater space. And it's in in the, the journey of this spiral, there's just more and more space around the same things. And I think of the spiritual journey as so much like that. It's like how many times have you walked ar- around the breath or thoughts, body sensations. You know, we're, we're traveling through um, washing dishes, eating, you know, a banana, you know, what is this repetition? And yet, if you're in the present moment, it's so awesome, you know, so wondrous. And we, can we bring this sense of um, the spiritual journey, that maybe we're learning more skill, and that out of that skill, we get more spacious attention around our moment-to-moment experience. Could that be part of the journey? This is a poem by William Stafford and it's called A Ritual to Read to Each Other. If you don't know the kind of person I am and I don't know the kind of person you are, a pattern that others made may prevail in the world and following the wrong God home we may miss our star. For there is many a small betrayal in the mind, a shrug that lets the fragile sequence break, sending with shouts the horrible errors of childhood, storming out to play through the broken dyke. And as elephants parade holding each elephant's tail, but if one wanders, the circus won't find the park. I call it cruel and may be the root of all cruelty to know what occurs but not recognize the fact. And so I appeal to a voice, to something shadowy, a remote and important region in all who talk. Though we could fool each other, we should consider, lest the parade of our mutual life get lost in the dark. For it is important that awake people be awake, or a breaking line may discourage them back to sleep. The signals we give, yes, or no, or maybe, should be clear. The darkness around us is deep. So us humans we're born into the realm of the six sense doors. You know, at each sense door they're seeing consciousness, hearing consciousness, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. You know, this is we're born into this world of amazing change. It's a predicament, you know, really to try to find the light in the darkness. What I mean by that is that we're born into such conditioning uh, that yes, we may miss our star. We need to have some kind of map for navigating spiritually through the human journey. And it's important to wonder, at least, what is the darkness? You know, what is being awake? Uh, And one aspect of this in the Buddhist practice is to really face the truth of how life is, and to understand how and why we suffer. Often the first part of a spiritual journey is really facing that we're born into a world of predator and prey you know and (laughs) what is that? I mean I remember the first time I did a long retreat here and you know I was just really loving the sound of the birds in the spring and you know seeing the birds and then one day I was just very quiet, very concentrated, walked out the back door from eating lunch and just in a moment saw this robin you know grab a worm and swallow it, you know, and it, w- there's that sweetness of the bird song, but <laughs> you know, everybody's eating each other, right? You know, I mean, it's just like, what, how do you come to terms with that range of experience that we're born into, that we're all born into, female, male, red, yellow, black, white, war, war, incomprehensible, peace, joy, sorrow, easy, difficult, second day of retreat, pain, (laughs) pain, (laughs) pleasure, neutrality. So hopefully the range of joy and sorrow for us has been somewhat shattering enough to come to a retreat. Now that we're cracked open enough to know that we really Deeply need to search for understanding. One aspect that we come to understand in this mindfulness practice is that we suffer when we run away from pain and when we hold on to pleasure. The Buddha taught that we can understand the whole universe through paying attention to this fathom-long body. And you know, how do we suffer? Say we're paying attention to the breath, or we're taking a step. And sometimes it's very light that we suffer, very um, subtle. You know, so we're noticing the breath, but we're really on automatic pilot. You know, it's just another breath. <laughs> you know, and we're doing walking meditation, and. You know, you can barely take paying attention to another step. It's so boring, you know. And that's a kind of suffering. That's a kind of darkness in and of itself. And slowly we start to see the difference between, you know, the, the word breath or our idea about taking a step or our idea about anything which is conceptual, it's a thought about our experience, versus letting ourselves drop into the unknown or the uncertainty of really not knowing what our experience is. Because that's the truth. If you let go of the concept, you have to fall into the unknown and be willing to to just not know, well, what is a breath? without any idea about it, in that moment. In that moment, you're free from the past conditioning. We also see that we can be very judgmental, even about a place in the body. Like, what if there's a place in the body that's very tight? And how can that be so unacceptable for us? You know, how we can attack it, we don't like it, you know, it's not good enough an experience for us, you know, to look at the difference between just letting ourselves explore, well, what is burning, you know, what is tight, free again from any kind of concept or judgment about it. You know, this is a lot of the practice. And I'm not saying that we can do it every moment, but I'm talking about an aspect of suffering where we get so lost in a past uh, idea about something that we can't just be in the moment with something just as it is. This is a lot of the practice. So concepts themselves can bring us into the darkness if we don't see that the word breath will just arise a lot of the times when we pay attention to the breath. Or the word leg will arise a lot of the time when we're taking a step. That's fine. But can we bring our attention to just what is in that moment without just getting totally lost in automatic pilot, assuming that that experience is just a leg, rather than exploring it, in that moment. And then the next moment. That's what's hard. We project all those moments onto the future and think, this is too hard. You know, I can't get through a day of practice. Can you imagine trying to pay attention to a step for 40, 40 <laughs> minutes? How I'm saying? No, it would be too hard. And that's a concept. You try to just be with that step. That's hard enough. If you lay too much of a future onto it, it gets heavy. If you try to just take one step, it's actually almost workable. Not so impossible. The second foundation of mindfulness is um, understanding pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feelings. The Buddha taught the first foundation of mindfulness is body all aspects of body. And then the second is pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feeling. And when we first hear that teaching, we often think that the Buddha was talking about emotion. Uh, but this is a very subtle um, teaching. You know, so what the Buddha was saying that was that with each moment of consciousness, uh, that there's also a corresponding physical, uh, a pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feeling, and that this is mental. So say with the sound of the bird, that's a Phoebe, by the way. Phoebe? Phoebe? You know, I I know that (laughs) sounds so well from growing up here. Sometimes the sound (laughs) of the Phoebe has driven me crazy on retreats. You know, it would be so unpleasant for me. And other times it would be so pleasant. And other times neutral. So just try being with that sound, you know. No? (laughs) Right now, Phoebe, (laughs) versus just the direct vibration of the sound itself. (laughs) That's what we're doing. And then is it pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? To really understand the nuts and bolts of suffering how and why we suffer is right where you understand pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feeling. Because if you don't notice the pleasantness of something, we tend to be enjoying, enjoying, and we miss that. And then we get attached. And when life changes, we hold on, we suffer. And so it's not the pleasant feeling that's the problem. And this is where we get mixed up. We're not trying to get rid of pleasure or pain. We're trying to learn how to work skillfully with the being born into a world of change within pleasure and pain. Enjoyment isn't really the problem. It's that we're not aware of the enjoyment and then the grabbing on. So, the Buddha taught that that moment where we grab on, you know, that's really a moment of closing off to the truth. Yeah, the truth is that life is changing. And that that pleasant experience has passed. But when the controller arises, the manipulator, that's a separate self. That's a me or I or mine. And that grabbing on is suffering because we've disconnected from the truth of life in that moment. And the same with unpleasant. Say you're sitting there and, you know, it's been great. You're with the breath or sound or body sensations and you're not getting caught in thought. And then, you know, the emotions are very light, or they're not present. And then say this twang in the lower back happens, you know, twang. <laughs> and then it's another twang. And it, uh, I don't want this experience. I don't want this experience. And we close off again. And the truth is that that experience is happening. And so the aversion to the experience, the Buddha taught, is the suffering, not the unpleasantness itself. So the suffering is in the mind. So the purpose of understanding change the purpose of understanding the truth of existence. And if we can pay attention to change very closely, which is mindfulness practice, uh, we can start to be free from suffering. You know, And we can start to see that we can be detached from the notion that passing things are definitive. Experience is provisional, it's non-definitive, and we often lose our way uh, because we'll think that we've blown it some way, we've blown life in some way, we've become disconnected from the truth of life. But what's so amazing with mindfulness practice is that in one moment when we return, when we connect again with our experience, no matter where we are in the spiral, it brings space to that experience and we're free in that moment we're not lost. We're at home. And we learn in those moments that everything that happens to go by is okay because it's provisional. It's reality. So we learn to deal with any experience in perfect freedom because we're in contact with something deeper. The awareness itself isn't tied to pleasure and pain. The awareness is free. We're not tied anymore to the pleasure pain syndrome. Or another way to say that is we're not imprisoned or oppressed by the pleasure pain syndrome. A moment of mindfulness is really just calling ourselves back to the truth. It's just reconnecting to the truth, reconnecting to the truth. This is from Thomas Merton. He said that we know there is no such thing as any of us always meeting the truth head on. We just don't do it. But we do sometimes, and that's good. We face up to the truth, and then we fall back again into these complicated evasions. We hide. We say to ourselves, Wait a little. Don't confront me just yet. Let me get myself together and figure out what I've got to do about this. You know, we just don't quite want to face it. And the complicated evasions, on a second day of a retreat, we're often becoming very familiar with them. And uh, part of the practice is also learning to accept that, You know, that we, we, go, we move away and then mostly what we need to appreciate is that we've come back and we go away. And mostly what we need to focus on is that, yes, we've come back. So say we're going along and again, you know, we're having a sense that we're really connecting. And I think Sleepiness is often a great way to um, look at suffering, the, the appearance of sleepiness. Because sometimes with sleepiness, sometimes, it'll feel like you're really present. Your, your attention is very much with the breath or whatever we're paying attention to. Uh, and we call this ability to have the attention aimed to an experience and connect with it um, You know, we taka, we chara, they're they're factors of concentration where we can bring this kind of scattered, you know, disturbed sort of attention that's our normal reality usually, and we bring it to something and we focus on it. So we we try to say we're trying to find the breath, we, we bring the attention together with the breath, and then hopefully we can sustain that a little. That's called aiming, sustaining. And we really feel like we're there. Uh, and uh, suddenly we nod, yeah. And it's like, what happened? You know, <laughs> I, th- I was really doing good. Uh, but there isn't just quite enough energy for us to maintain that sustaining of the attention with the breath. Um, and say that happens again and again. You know, Maybe that happens over five minutes. Uh, It's really interesting to look how we suffer there, or if we suffer. Because sometimes, you know, it might be 10 o'clock at night and we're laying down. And then when we nod off, we're not usually unhappy about it. (laughs) In fact, the Buddha called sleep the world's greatest pleasure. And that's interesting in and of itself. But so say, you know, we get so much experience at this. we You know, we sit down and there's not quite enough energy and we start nodding. And then what do we do with that? Well, if we have a lot of aversion, we, meaning we don't like that experience, and we start trying to do something out of that not wanting it, we're just going to get more uptight and we'll suffer. But if we can bring that kind of, ah, uh, accepting, attention. And it's, you can think of it as an accepting presence, maybe an interest in the physical sensations around sleepiness, uh, and start really paying attention to what sleepiness is rather than the word. The word sleepiness is just a word, but it's a whole bunch of moments that we could become interested in. You know, so we can describe many things that you've probably heard to do, to work with it, and hopefully that comes out of acceptance rather than not liking it. If you're with the breath, it can be helpful to add a touch point in with the breath. This is, you know. First, you've explored the physical sensations. You're still nodding. <laughs> and then, you you know, you, you add a touch point in with the breath. So if you're with a rising, falling movement, you might notice rising, falling. Ex- notice the sensations in your hands. Rising, falling, notice the sensations in your hands. Now, if sleepiness is hitting you like thud, that's probably not going to work very well. Because the breath is air element. It's very light. Uh, and it might be putting you into a kind of trance. So you drop the breath and you might pick a t- pattern of six or eight touch points. Again, this isn't out of, I hate sleepiness, I don't. you know, it's more like, oh, that's not, you know, that's not really working, that's not as skillful right now. And We notice these sensations in the left shoulder, the right hip, the left knee, the right foot. That's fun, huh? Can I do left foot, right knee, left hip, right shoulder? You know, that's going to take some, what? That takes energy to do that. You're not going to put yourself to sleep, you know, like you are with just being with the nice, sweet rhythm of the breath that sounds like the ocean that, you know, (laughs) is lulling you to sleep. You know, if if you're restless out of your mind and you need... To to kind of balance that with the breath, that's the perfect thing to do sometimes with restlessness. Sometimes it's good to just open the attention with restlessness. So you start to see that different ways of practicing are skillful at certain times. There's no right formula for everything. So you try just noticing different sensations in the body in a pattern that makes you alert. If that doesn't work, you open your eyes for a while. You know, and then there's that graceful surrender we all don't really like, but we usually ride it out and then eventually the energy will change. If you've practiced a long time, you have great faith in it. You know, the energy will fit will change. If you're not used to it it'll be like <laughs> I don't <laughs> I know my first retreat I had so much sleepiness. You know, I thought, What am I gonna do with all the sleepiness? And finally I learned to go through it. Next retreat, there wasn't as much sleepiness, there was a lot of aversion that I didn't notice the first retreat. And it was like, oh no, what am I gonna do with all this aversion? Resistance. I didn't want it. I didn't want to learn the skill of learning to work with it. And finally, you know, it, it just it's it it looks just like this. You know, it's like a trumpet goes off and a little white flag goes up, and it's like, "Oh, maybe I need to learn to experience this. you know when you do that you've you this is a huge accomplishment. this isn't easy. Yesterday, I was at the hospital, and this um it was very difficult, and this um angel a a, a doctor actually from Thailand came in to see my dad uh, and there was a lot of talking about this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and my dad actually, actually said, he was kind of really out of it, and then he, he, s- he looked at this guy, and he said, you know, my daughter teaches insight meditation. <laughs> 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 and this guy looked at me, and I, I said, well, when did you leave Thailand? And he said, many years ago. And then he just stopped. He looked at me, and he said, oh, Buddhist practice, very difficult. (laughs) (laughs) He says, I don't do that. I don't do that. (laughs) So, you know, it can be hard to navigate through sleepiness, never mind when you get to some of the more difficult things, like attachment and aversion. But remember that it's learning, you're learning how to work with this stuff. And it's gradual, it's like you're going around the shell and you get more and more space, more and more skill, so that it's, it becomes like, say, fear comes up. It's not, oh no, fear, you know, that's gonna kill me. I can't work with that. To, oh, I'm afraid, it's okay. It's just fear. When aversion or attachment do come up, um, what's difficult for us to remember, and this is why I'm talking about the second foundation of mindfulness, the pleasantness and the unpleasantness is actually happening inside us. And we tend to project it outside. So say the bird, the sound is unpleasant and we're, we're not liking it. We tend to think it's the bird's fault when we're really not paying attention. And if we could only, you know, move the nest, or whatever, you know, life would be okay. Uh, One of the common things that happens for most yogis on a retreat, at some point, is that they become attracted to somebody on the retreat, you know, we call it the VR, Vipassana Romance. Uh, but if we look really closely at at any kind of attraction which we experience as human beings, but we're urging not to look around. It's amazing, you know. <laughs> you can keep your eyes down and have a you know budding vipassana romance with somebody, and you've never seen their face. <laughs> you know, and this is really interesting. How does this happen? You know, this is, this is really interesting. And then there's the opposite, which is when we don't like somebody because of their shoes. The roots of war. The roots of lust. You know, it's like, what is it? And we tend to think, oh, it's that pretty person or handsome person. Oh, oh, I don't like their shirt. And we forget that it's actually happening inside. We don't want to face the truth that we're the ones <laughs> that are responsible in that, in that moment. You know, so a lot of the practice is having that um, understanding that it's happening <coughs> inside and to start just taking a closer look when you have the energy and taking a closer look, taking a closer look. Since I was a young girl, uh, there was a neighbor across the street from me that um, became my spiritual friend growing up. And she's much older than me, but I I always found her able to mirror um, the spiritual side of me through just simple conversation. But it was very wonderful for me growing up. Uh, and once in a while, she e- emails me, but she's not good at computers. Usually, the one or two emails I get from her a year, I you know you open it your e- your email up and you see who it's from, and I get really excited that oh, she's written me, and then I open it up and it's always blank. <laughs> 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 and then I write her back, and it comes back blank, and that's sort of the re- relationship, you know. <laughs> And once in a while she gets her husband to sort of finally send it. And one of the ones she sent me last fall was, uh, she said, oh, today was just like any other day where I'm in a frenzy trying to keep everything from being how it is. Isn't that a great description of life? Today just like any other day where I'm trying to keep everything from being how it is. You know, and at the beginning of a retreat, you know, that's what we're tending to see, that resistance. And resistance is okay. And how I wanted to talk about that, because it's really important and I come to see more and more how it's important. Um, sometimes we can be here at this time of year, when the peonies are coming out. I don't know if you know what peonies are, but they're... Nope. Um, They're the big, lush flowers that, you know, whoever gave them so many petals. You know, it's just amazing that the amount of petals that these buds have, these flowers have. Uh, But if you're here for this month, you'll start to uh, see at the beginning of the month where these buds are very small. And just the conditions of spring into summer, the buds start swelling. Uh, And when I look out at everybody in the hall, I tend to see us all as buds. You know, and we tend to compare it with each other a lot. But if we just see each other as flower buds that are going to open when we open, when the conditions are ripe, it can be very helpful for cutting through, comparing with each other. On a deeper level, I think of our hearts as more flower-like than maybe like a steel trap. So that when we talk about opening to the truth or opening to the present moment, I think we think we should just open and that's it. Maybe tomorrow you can go home, you know, and there won't be any more need to open because you've opened. But in actual fact, It's a little more complicated than that. It's it's that we're learning to open to the vast range of pleasure and pain in the world. When we open, we open to pleasure and pain. When we close, we close off to pleasure and pain. So we open, and you've all done this before, but then we close. That closing is aversion and attachment. It's not permanent. In just a few moments, we might close off, and we suffer. But just think of that as like a bud that's closed. And then we might have the courage to really face a moment of pain in the knee. In those moments, we've opened. The flower has opened. Maybe five minutes later, we've closed again. And sometimes I just say, tight, 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 tight. The heart just closes protect itself. Because the mindfulness isn't there. We're not protected by that in that moment. So if you can see going through a day of retreat where your heart is more like a flower that's opening and closing, and to compare with each other would be madness from that perspective. Yeah? And even comparing with ourself is kind of crazy. if you had a sense of your heart even being more like water than a rock or or more petal-like. Uh, because I think that the alternative to seeing ourselves like that is kind of like seeing our heart like a, a rusted steel trap where the bolts, you know, are impossible to move. You know, and that's really not the truth of 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 things. It's not the truth of our attention. So don't take my word for it. Explore what I'm saying. The Buddha did say, though, that what we're doing on retreat is facing the suffering that ends suffering. And that's this exploration. It's this exploration of understanding the truth of change. And understanding that we call a separate self is any temporary few moments where we're closing off to the truth of life by not liking the experience, or hating the experience, or really liking the the experience, and and holding on to it when it passes. So another way to say that is that suffering is being identified temporarily. with our reactions to the change of pleasure and pain in the world. When we pay attention with this uh, ability to aim the attention to what's happening, like a breath, and then to to connect and sustain the attention. It's said if we can do that with some continuity, we're not saying that this has to be done all day. That would, again, add add too much pressure. But say in a few minutes with the movement of the leg and a step, or the movement of the breath, we're able to do that. It's said that joyful interest can arise. And and this can be just a few moments where we're interested. And we can get a sense with that, that the course of the spiral of the journey in meditation is that when we can become interested in a step, or we can become interested in washing our dishes, um, or interested in chewing um, some oatmeal and letting it slither down, You know, when we can become interested in those experiences, that we can then become interested in maybe some knee pain. Um, Or we can become interested in the experience of fear. And again, I'm saying that this is just a word. The word fear is just a word. But when interest arises, this kind of interest, it's this ability to to have the space, enough spacious attention, where we can go, I wonder what, i really, you know, it's like this huge accomplishment. We're not resisting, we've accepted the truth of life, that that fear has appeared. And it's just this utter awe, ah, like what is it that makes me run? And, you know, maybe we try to experience it for a few more minutes before we start thinking about it. And get lost in some story. And with, with a aver- with aversion, it's amazing how we can get lost in stories. It's like we're either blaming ourselves, or blaming somebody else, or we're getting right and right and right. Uh, and it takes some practice, it takes some skill to be able to go, oh, anger, you know. And then, oh, maybe I should try to connect my attention with my body, ground out of the thinking process for a, so that one isn't lost in the thoughts about the anger and see what, what's the experience of anger free from our ideas or concepts about it. And this, again, this isn't easy. You know why it's not easy. Anger isn't pleasant. Anger is about as unpleasant an experience as we can get. It's, we're so separate from the experience. We're so separate from the truth of things as they are. So It requires this willingness facing the truth requires a willingness to go, oh, ouch, ouch, this hurts, but maybe I'm willing to explore it because freedom, the taste, the taste of the truth is so important to me. If we can become interested in the breath, we can become interested in cold rain that appears in mid-June. And become interested in darkness itself, you know, the range of experience of a human being. You know, we become more alive, more vital, uh, rather than asleep in the darkness. This is why we're here. and sometimes in the process we discover vulnerable hidden painful parts of ourselves that we're really conditioned to resist a lot and it's important <laughs> you know to it's okay say unlovableness comes up or helplessness or hopelessness or you know fear Uh, the tendency is to really disconnect from some of these experiences. And even if we think of sort of areas in the body, if you've practiced a lot, you know, the karmic knots I call them, but, you know, old, some people call them old friends. (laughs) Uh, I call them my lifetime guru. You know, it's like your lifetime teacher can be these karmic knots, whether they're some kind of emotional knot that, that it happens are physical, but it's r- these are it's very clear these these karmic knots because we have a relationship with them of utter resistance. It's such a dark it's a dark force in the mind. It's like, oh no, they're still happening. You know that's the word still is the is the you know determining factor for a karmic knot. Mm-hmm. You know. Oh, I'm 50 years old, and a fear of rejection is still coming up. <coughs> what's wrong with me? What's wrong with the practice? You know, I you know all this doubt will come up, because we still have this pain in the neck. You know, it's pretty interesting. You know, if I could only get this, rid of this pain in the neck, I'd be fully enlightened. <laughs> the Buddha had back pain. So these deeper knots are humbling uh, and the, what, what again is amazing is that, that these experiences are the hardest for us to become interested in. That's all. That's all. And they're, they're the things that we came into this world with the least experience with. You know, so they're the things in this world that we're here to learn the most about. So I think of these deeper knots in the mind and body as our greatest teachers, not obstacles, because they really teach us how to work with aversion and attachment with pleasant and unpleasant. How wonderful when you start to get it. Right here in your fathom-long body, you've got everything you need to learn to be fully awake. This is called A Cedary Fragrance by Jane Hirschfield from Given Sugar, Given Salt. Even now, decades after, I wash my face with cold water, not for discipline, nor memory, nor the icy awakening slap, but to practice choosing to make the unwanted wanted. Now, some of us might not choose to pour cold water over our face, um, but it is this great metaphor for practice where we're learning how to stretch and open to aspects of life that we might find unacceptable. When I first came to practice, I'd say 98 percent of my experience was unacceptable, honestly. that's how how you know, that I had a lot of work to do. <laughs> so if you're 90, 96, you're doing great. You know, it's like, just just see. That's, what we su- that's the darkness itself. When we resist our experience, we suffer. And when we open, even if it's painful, because we have this deep delight in the truth, we don't suffer. We're connected to what is true, what is real. So the practice is really about repairing how we disconnect from our experience, from the truth, within ourselves and with others. And as we, as we learn to connect with our experience, with wisdom and love, we learn to trust our spiritual practice. We learn to trust ourselves and our life here, and that makes the navigation. Um, easier. It's like we find the star that helps guide us through the darkness. And all the blessings in life come from this, understanding how and why we suffer. Let's sit for a minute. may we learn to g- bring more and more light into the darkness